You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me for our special New Year episode are two of our favorite guests and beloved friends, Reverend Rachel Billups and Reverend Matt Rawl. Welcome, you two. Hey! (laughs) Thanks for having us. (laughs) Yeah, you bet. So I always look forward to conversation with you two, and... Um, about this time last year, we invited you to respond to Carrie Newhoff's 2023 Church Trends mm. blog post article that he sends out. And it was such a hit with listeners that we decided to invite you back. And what I want to say, you two, is I always enjoy conversations with you, um, not just in the podcast, but in our lives together and in in the ways that we intersect in ministry, because you are both passionate pastors, like you care about what's happening on the ground and what's happening in Mm. your congregations and in your neighborhoods and communities, and you are always kind of keen observers of what is happening in the world and in the church and in the religious landscape. And so I always learn something when I'm with you and you always bring this energy and passion and care for Christ's loving work in the world and, and it matters. And so, um, so I, I just, I want to say thank you. Yeah, no pressure. Thanks for that introduction. Like, uh, I hope these next forty minutes are profound. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a quite an introduction. No no pressure, right? And the other thing I want to say is, uh, Kerry Newhoff just released his. 2024 Church Trends article yesterday. And so we were really excited to be able to record this morning. And thank you both for saying yes so quickly to having this conversation today. And and I should say to our listeners that the link to Carrie Newhoff's article, as well as Rachel and Matt's bios, will be available in our show notes. So uh, let's jump in. There are seven trends that uh, Carrie lays out. And we're not going to try to get to all of them, but I do want to yeah. highlight several of them. And um, and who knows? We'll, we'll just see how the conversation unfolds. But the first trend that he names is the stable church has become an endangered species. Mm. Do you hear that? The stable church has become an endangered species. He says, and, and this is a quote from his little piece. And there's an almost 90% chance your church is either growing or declining. Only 12% of respondents reported that their church was stable, neither mm-hmm. attracting new people nor shrinking. Another way to think about this is that churches that have momentum are gaining even more momentum, while churches that don't are losing people just as quickly. And he goes on to say that fully 54% of churches are in moderate or significant decline. So more are on the declining side than on the growing side, right? With the momentum side. So then he basically says, this all points to the need to change. That in our rapidly changing culture, we have to be constantly changing, revitalizing, transforming. So here's the question to start. 
How have you experienced this trend? What does it look like to be on the ground where uh, stability is an endangered species? How does that impact your ministry and what you're seeing? I'll go first. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, honestly, I think we've been feeling this for a long time. Uh, If I think about, you know, I just spent the last eight years at Ginghamsburg Church, one one of our largest churches um, in United Methodism, and now the church that I'm at in New Albany, Ohio. And the reality is we have moved from one crisis to the next. And that's not Mm -hmm. just the pandemic. I've experienced pastoral transition at like the highest level. We've experienced everything from like political tensions, um, George Floyd, you name it. We've experienced it. And I think, uh, I don't even know what stable church really means. Like who in the world even has a stable church? And so I think that's our norm. Um, It really has been our norm, at least for the last decade, it feels like. Matt? Yeah, no, and and I I agree. And I would add that it's not just the the church where stability is rare. Yeah. I think in in lots of arenas in our culture, stability is a rarity, right? Because it... And it's not, um, I don't think it's a surprise that the church is a reflection of the general culture in terms of uh, change or lack of change or uh, the rarity of, of stability. Now, the numbers aren't incredibly different uh, than, than 2020, but I think the reason behind them uh, are, are, are quite different. We may talk about this a little bit later, uh, but to find stability, right, things, things like purchasing power has become a big deal. Right. When, when like milk is $7 a gallon, that affects <laughs> like how regular churches work, right? Larger churches have the capital to weather some of this change. Smaller churches mm-hmm. don't. So, so there's a, a more rapid decline in that kind of, that kind of atmosphere. And I would say like, we have to be ready for change because I think some of these things are going to be fixed for just a bit longer. I think one thing that needs to be add, added to our metrics in terms of pastoral effectiveness that I don't think has ever been before is adaptability. I think having a high threshold for adaptability yes. will be a key for success in the future. Not just yet, because I think back uh, several years ago, pastoral leadership greatly affected growth or decline. Now I think culture as a whole is dictating that, and a lot of our clergy are in places where their style and leadership isn't a great fit anymore, but the system is not allowing uh, for that change to happen. So I think very soon, not quite yet, but I think very soon adaptability is going to be a a really, if I were in seminary, I would be training and teaching people how to be adaptive and to move quickly, because I think that is going to be a really important metric moving forward. I want to just go down a rabbit hole just for a moment so that we can talk about that word adaptive, because I think you're right. It's about agility and the uh, ability to change. Um, But can you say a word about what you mean by adaptability? I've heard folks um, hear that word and say we're adapting toward the culture versus, Mm, um, uh, you know, kind of um, an understanding of adaptive, not adapting to the culture, but still being that uh, counter-cultural, you know. um, Yeah, and I don't think, in, in, in terms of adaptability, I don't think it's about necessarily the values of culture, but the way culture is right? The, the way mm-hmm. culture does. Uh, and so I think absolutely the church has always been a reflection of how we do, right? Because we, we're living in a world where Amazon is the biggest retailer, but has no stores. And, and Uber is the biggest taxi service with no cars. And how does the mm-hmm. church adapt to that? 
in terms of adaptability, we're building a dance floor that we're dancing on. So mm -hmm. if you're not careful, you're going to tweak an ankle, right? And that's what I mean by <laughs> adaptability is to respond very quickly to variables that are unexpected because there's no playbook. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so if there's a playbook, then part of leadership is learning that playbook really well and being able to implement that. In this era, uh, you have to be able to build and dance and move all at the same time. So that's what I mean by adaptability is responding to variables that are unexpected more so than ever before, because there is no playbook of what this is supposed to look like. And I think the challenge for a lot of pastors is that's not, as Matt is describing, that's not the way that they've been trained. You know, they've not right. been trained to be adaptive. We've been trained to, to think like, we're in charge and we're the ones who are trying to like maintain and keep everything stable. And I actually think part of that adaptability is for pastors to less see themselves as the experts in the room and more see themselves as people who are supposed to be catalysts. They're, so, they're supposed to be looking in the room and saying, okay, I need all of these people to engage in what our future is going to look like. And so, um, the future, and we'll talk about this later, is going to be way more collaborative than it's ever been in the past. And this notion that any one of us is supposed to be some superhero uh, for the church of the future, that, I hope that's pretty dead. And I think that, to your point, is is Carrie's second point in terms of, of, of boomers and Gen X and, and the different ages and stages uh, in the church is because in the veteran generations, it is an expectation for us to be the expert in the room and to preach and to teach. And as the, 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 the timeline goes, communities are less and less impressed with a talking head and more and more looking for an environment in which to be a catalyst, mm -hmm. right? And that's a very different way of, of being in ministry, right? And that's to, to carry second point in terms of, of boomers. I think that plays yeah. really, really well into that. Let's go to the second point. But um, one thing I want to point out um, is that as you read these and you really look at what's underneath, you see that they're all connected. Yes. Like they're not yeah. distinct trends. Actually, I mean, the last point about a, a new kind of leadership is connected to the fact that the people who are attending, whether online or in the pews, are are uh, those demographics are shifting, and so what is expected out of our leaders and um, and this notion of needing to be agile and adaptive. Anyway, they're all connected. Okay, so mm -hmm. the research um, from Barna that that. Carrie refers to says that millennials came back to church more than boomers yeah. did mm -hmm. um, post pandemic and overall boomers are showing a decline in church attendance. And that of course impacts giving and volunteerism, um, especially in local churches, local churches are structured around the habits of uh, boomers and older generations. Right. Um, at, in fact, Everything that we've been doing, that we've been trained, to your point, Rachel, um, as leaders in the church has been toward a stability, right? Yeah. And so we've not been trained for this kind of season. But, but here's what I would love to hear you all talk about. What's your experience with this trend of more millennials, less um, boomers, um, and the trend, what he says is millennials are the new core of your church. And so I'd love to hear you all talk about, does this hold true in the main line? Um, you, you know, we can assume that, that 
perhaps the respondents might lean a little bit toward the evangelical church traditions and congregations. So does does this trend hold true in the mainline? And, you know, also thinking about some recent surveys that say that the average age of membership in most mainlines is still in the upper 50s. Yeah. The sure. oldest millennial is now 43. Yep. So how are you seeing this in your own space? So I had a very, really interesting experience a couple of months ago. I was in the middle of a capital campaign and I just talked, um, this was like an informal survey. I was just talking to the congregation and we were going through the generations. I have two worship celebrations, two worship services, one that's more contemporary, one that's more traditional. And what was shocking to me about both of those worship celebrations is that um, from builders all the way uh, to Gen Alpha, um, there were representation everywhere. Like, and so I was actually shocked because I I wouldn't have assumed, particularly at my most traditional service, which tips to be a little more seasoned, that all of those generations would be represented. The other thing that was so shocking to me was the sheer amount of millennials that were participating in my contemporary service. Probably over half mm-hmm. of that service was millennials. So I was like, I didn't know that about my own congregation. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me say, I only had one builder there, but I had a, a, a large portion of boomers who were part of my contemporary service as well. So it was just really a fascinating mixture of people. I say all that to say, um, I technically am not a millennial. Um, my birthday is December of 1980, which makes me... I don't know. Geriatric millennial <laughs> seems to like fit. <laughs> I'm just now 43, but like kind of on the cusp. So I say all that to say, I really recognize that uh, there, even for myself, I have a younger sister. She's a little bit different than me. She's five years younger than I am. Uh, her experience of everything from like the digital universe to life is yep. just a little bit different than my experience. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it's important to recognize Some of the habits, I'll give you an example. This sounds weird. I got married at 20 years old. I've been married almost 23 Mm. years. That is not true of my millennial counterparts for the most part. And so (laughs) it's just really interesting to recognize like the very different needs of a millennial population, some of which got married way later, some of which chose to have or not have children. There's just a very different picture of what do I need for my church? Let me talk about mm. it in terms of generosity. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. A boomer will come to me and say, hey, Pastor Rachel, when are we going to take estimates of giving for this year? Yeah. Because I want to fill out a pledge card, so to speak, because I want to yes. make sure that I do my thing that I'm used to doing. This is muscle memory for me as a boomer. It's an expectation. But generosity for my millennial has nothing to do with writing a check. It has everything to do with like, How am I inviting people into my home? How am I utilizing my resources for the greater good of the community? As nothing necessarily to deal with money, but rather, how is my lifestyle a generous lifestyle? That's a very different understanding of generosity than I'm going to write a check and I'm going to tithe to I'm going to invite my entire neighbors over for dinner. And uh, that's going to be my form of generosity for this week or month or year, that kind of thing. So it's just interesting I think we've got to wrap our minds around these things that we value in the church, like generosity, exist. They just exist very differently in different generations. 
I agree. And, and uh, let me say the same thing with different words. That's fascinating because <laughs> we have not talked about these questions no. ahead of time. And, and I, I came to the exact same conclusion. Um, well, one, something we haven't talked about. I'm, I'm not super surprised by this, because just because in terms of age and stage, I think forever and a day, 40 to 52-year-olds have always been the heartbeat of, of the church, generally speaking. Um, so I'm not surprised that millennials are now rising to being the core of the church. I, that doesn't surprise me. But what does is, much, Rachel, like you were saying, what I think we learned from post-COVID church is why people were there to begin with. Yeah. And I think you mentioned church giving. I think more generally speaking, part of the boomers' experience of church was obligation. There's an obligation to be in worship. There's an obligation to be in Sunday school. There's a pipeline of discipleship. Well, COVID and shutdowns took away that obligation, or at least it redefined that. Hmm. So there, there's a generation of folks saying, like, this obligation is now very different I don't, so I think part of the lack of return, and I will say this uh, in my context, there has been a lack of return of boomers because the obligation that was part of their rhythm of church is now gone because of shutdown. And therefore they're trying to discover a, not a reason. I don't want to be so pessimist, pessimistic as that, but what is that other heartbeat that is getting to them that millennials already have? Like millennials, it's about discipleship all around, right? Just like you were saying, in our home, on the street. A way of life, a way of being A way of, correct, mm -hmm. right? So I think one of the reasons why boomers were, were later to return uh, is, is the obligation, which is not a part of millennial faith experience in the same way, right? That was erased in great part with uh, COVID, and that has not returned. That, that obligation to sign a pledge card, put a check in a plate, it's just there's less and less opportunity for that kind of obligation, which is why I think it's hard for them to find their space uh, in the church. So let's get practical with this a moment. And, and how do you as pastors deal with these differences? You're seeing the differences in how different generations show up, but also their different perspectives that are different needs, their different expectations of, of the church. So how do you, how do you hold that intention? How do you After address sitting in a fetal position and crying in a corner because I have no idea like what to do. Once what that's do? done, you know, after I fill out my, you know, my SPR paperwork. No, I, I, I think, and I may be putting words in Rachel's mouth. I think collaboration is a big part of a big part of that, mm. of, of uh, again, because there is no playbook. We have to rely on each other in terms of understanding how to continue to share the gospel uh, because of the, the, the changing culture. So for me, it's, it's diving into, which is a growing edge uh, of mine, is to lean into collaboration with other leaders to help fill in these different threads of the ecosystem uh, that are being pulled. When discipleship is a pipeline, it's pretty easy. You follow A, B, C, D, E. Okay. Now that it's an ecosystem, this thread is being pulled over here, this thread is being pulled over here, and it's hard to keep up uh, with those different tensions that are popping up. So I think we, it is forcing us to work together uh, as professionals. I think that's true. I also think there is a lot of humility on the pastor's part to be a good listener. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You've got to be listening to mm -hmm. your people in ways that maybe you didn't have to listen before. Again, remember, we used to have to be the experts in the room. And right. I think you have to do a lot of R&D and just look at the habits of your folk and be willing to um, try some things out and recognize 
hey, that, that may fail and that's okay. We got to try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. So we've got to be way more nimble than we've ever been before. And when you're in a mentality of like scarcity and panic, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. But I think it's really important. You know, I think it's really important that we're talking about adaptability. We're talking about flexibility. We've got to be okay in a world that's not super stable. And I know every pastor that's listening, like just threw up in their mouth a little bit when I said that. But the reality is I want to kind of go back to go forward when we were talking about that first trend that like unstable, that destabilization, so to speak, it would be really tempting in that kind of world to be like, well, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this almost to be chasing trends, to be a trend Mm -hmm. chaser. We can't do that. That's not sustainable. I think the biggest deal for leaders is that you have to remain centered and healthy. You've got to get healthy. You've got to get centered. You've got to focus on like, how do I, how do I personally get healthy? And how do I have, how do we create a healthy ecosystem in this church, a healthy culture Mm -hmm. so that questions are welcome. Input is the norm. We're always in conversation with one another. And then when we're thinking about where we want to go and in, in the future, we're not thinking about like, well, I want to be a church of a thousand by blah, 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 blah. But we're thinking about, no, no, no. These are the core values. These are the principles. These are the kind of people that I want to be in 2024, you know, like this or 2025 or 2026 and recognize that all the plans that we make in the next year are always going to be hijacked by pandemics and earthquakes and you name it, because that's, that's the new norm. That's the new norm. And so holding the values and holding like holding this identity higher than these metrics. Yeah. And so I, I I so appreciate what you're saying, because I think when you you describe this centeredness, this centeredness and values and identity, I think you're getting at the rub around what it means to be um, adaptive and agile. Yes, but you, you can only do that when you are centered in your identity and your core purpose and your values and what it is God has gifted us with and calls us to be and do in the world. And, and it's out of that that we are the alternative narrative in this ever-changing world, right? So we don't adapt to the culture, but we are agile as we hold on to our center and our core. To keep the metaphor, right? Uh-huh. Uh, the only way you can build on a dance floor and on which you're dancing mm-hmm. uh, is to have a strong core. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, it, it, you can't do that in the midst of atrophy, right? <laughs> if your if your leg muscles aren't aren't able, like you're gonna trip and you're gonna fall, right? Yeah. Uh, so to keep that metaphor, we're, we're building a dance floor on which we're dancing, and the only way to do that, to echo what you're saying, Lisa, is our core, uh, core. literally and figuratively, right? That is yeah. what helps us. Yeah. That is what helps us in our adaptability, in our agility. Yeah. Yeah. So important. And I do okay, that because so, I have a long history of ballet dancing. Uh, I have uh-huh, a, you know, right, I've, I've been doing you. it for years and that's really, <laughs> that's what comes to mind is plies uh-huh. uh, and uh-huh. releves. And, it's what comes you know, just to mind to, when I see you, Matt. How graceful. Yeah. It, it's it's <laughs> liturgical. Yeah. I mean, it's rooted in the church. It's liturgical dance, uh, uh-huh. but that's, that's what comes to mind. <laughs> okay. 
So another generational trend that uh, Carrie points out is he says that Gen Z will start to reshape the church. So how are you seeing Gen Z's influence already in the church? I think a couple of things for me. I certainly think it's important that we start, um, number one, they are the kind of human beings that have lots of great ideas and they're wanting and willing to share them. And so how do we have these spaces and places when we're talking to Gen Z and empowering Gen Z, giving them voice and vote. Uh, I think about, I, I've, I've used this example a couple of times. Um, I found myself, I have a teenager that is really into technology and he happens to be the media intern at our church. And um, <laughs> he's always, he's always challenging some of the things we're doing, some of the like the platforms that we're using, some of the ways in which we're using our platforms. Um, he even did a podcast series with me on the use of technology where we had, um, you know, we were asking him the questions like, what, what, what about technology? You're a digital native. What about this that's working for you? What's not working for you? And so I think we really have to begin centering their voice um, in places where their voice isn't typically centered. And so um, I think that's, that's a, a pretty important piece um, of the next generation or at least that generation. Yeah, that's the shift, right? And we've we've hinted at it that in the uh, veteran um, generations, they're looking to us for leadership and teaching and preaching and this kind of thing. The the as we go through the generations, we're now de- dealing with a generation of uh, producers, of content creators, right? Technology has caught up to where, on their phone, they are producing the kind of content that we couldn't do uh, mm-hmm. ten years ago, right? So part of the role of the church now, I think, uh, with, with Gen Z, uh, uh, for sure, and, and the OMG generation and Gen Alpha, I, I get them all confused uh, at this point. <laughs> I'm showing my um, Gen X uh, mentality. Um, Your gray hair is showing. Is cr- <laughs> that's just, uh, I swear, I swear. Um, 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 the, um, we have to, instead of, and this is where I think like publishing and what the church is doing is now beginning to finally figure out, is that the church isn't to be the producer of the material. Rather, we are to create the environment in which this generation of catalysts, this generation of content creators have a space to share. That seems to be much more of an ultimate concern of theirs, to quote Paul Tillich, than uh, it is for us to be the authority in the room. We are the holders of space, not the voice in the space, if that makes sense, right? We are creating the manger for Jesus to be instead of bringing Jesus. They're already bringing Jesus. We need to create the environment in which that is successful. Uh, hot off the press, right? So in, in studying here in my local context of what the community needs are through Mission Insight. So for example, the top three needs of our community is social activity, volunteerism, and relationship all at the rate of 50%, right? Wow, But none of those say social activities in the church or volunteerism at the church, right? Mm -hmm. It is all community-based. So it is, I think, it is our job as clergy in particular and leaders in the church, let me say that more, more generally, to create an environment, to be the holders of space for this generation who wants to connect both analog and digitally, who want to connect with each other, we hold that space for them instead of dictating what happens within them. Yeah. I I think it has a lot to do with the way that we're discipling this next generation. Instead of like being 
kind of a dispensation, like a dispensary. We're going to give you all this information. We really have to change the way that we disciple. It's got to be way more relational. There's lots of questions, a lot of space, very collaborative, less like uh, more of a conversation and less of a lecture. Um, And then Mm -hmm. just allowing that particular generation um, to creatively say things like, well, what if we did this? What if we podcasted this? What if we tried this video? What if we tried that? And giving them space to try and fail. Again, I think this is something we are terrible at in the church. We want perfection. We want a slick presentation. I think that's going to matter less and less in the future. Well, and we think that evangelism is apologetics, and that's not the case. Evangelism is creating an environment for the gospel, not not holding building walls to defend it, right? Um, so I, I think as we move into this next phase of whatever this next phase is in terms of sharing the gospel, it's much more about creating environment for that to happen rather than dictating what is happening within those spaces. Okay, this is a great segue to the next conversation I want to have, and that is it's in uh, Carrie's work, it's trend number four, but it's also trend number six. And it's this move toward the digital, right? With a growth in in uh, digital forms of discipleship and spiritual formation, and then growing churches leaning into AI more in 2024. And um, here's a quote to start. So many churches limit their online presence to try to fuel in-person attendance. To put it bluntly, he says, to treat your online platform as an evangelism resource or growth strategy and to ignore it as a discipleship vehicle is downright foolish. Yep. That's about as pointed as he gets in this whole (laughs) thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So what does an online platform as a discipleship vehicle look like? What are some of the conversation experiments you're trying to deepen discipleship Mm. in online space? Yeah, we've done a lot of thinking about this uh, just in our context. One, right, the the top three, by, by a long shot, the top three things that people are hungry for are social activity, volunteerism, and relationship building, right? Um, and not necessarily in the church, uh, uh, but but uh, together uh, in these digital analog spaces. In terms of one, one thing I, I think is a misstep, and I think Carrie's right about this, but here's a metaphor to understand it, is that a movie is not someone reading a book on screen. So <laughs> the church's digital presence has been reading a book on screen, right? It's the same content just in a different form. And that's not correct, right? Um, One, it has to be relational. And you also have to understand we're dealing with a different medium, right? Mm -hmm. A movie has sounds and lights and, and, and environments. And it's not just someone reading a book on screen. And that's where I think a lot of us, and it will come with time and capital and resources and all of those, those things, right? Uh, it's still, we're still very early in this, but we we sometimes make the mistake, just like he's saying, I would put it a different way, is that we're creating movies of people reading books on screens instead of creating an art form of digital relationship, right? So in terms of, I call it the dig- digital ecosystem of how mm-hmm. people are relating with each other. We're not to be Netflix. We're not to be HBO Max in terms of our production value. Again, we are to create these spaces for this generation of producers, right? They're better at it than we are. Uh, so let's let them, <laughs> let's let's give them permission uh, uh, to do that. So number one, people are hungry for connection. And number two, 
in terms of like streaming worship online and these kind of things, we've been reading a book on a screen and that's not what this generation is looking for. They're looking for a different medium and a different way artfully uh, uh, to connect with each other. Just to emphasize that what may sound like you're talking about production value, you're actually not talking about, I mean, you know, more resources, better production, more flashy lights, the movie Hollywood produced. You're not talking about that. You're actually, you're almost skipping that step, if you will. Not to say that that doesn't matter, but you're saying it's not just about sit and get anymore either. It's about how relationships are formed and interaction can happen and how uh, content is collaboratively produced, not just, you know, put out there better. Because I hear folks say, oh my God, we could never do that. Like we could never produce that kind of, you know, experience on Sunday morning in worship online um, as some of these uh, more resourced churches can do. And that's probably true. So then, you, you know, that then that's not your thing or whatever. Anyway, go ahead. But I... Well, it's the- Go ahead. I think this is really important. I think I was just thinking about this this morning because I'm getting ready to like experiment with my prayer time. I do a prayer time every morning. The reality is I reach more people in my prayer time every morning than my church does through live streaming every week. Mm-hmm. Let me say that again. I believe that. I reach more people <laughs> through my prayer time every morning, which is not produced because sometimes I, you know, I look like crazy. My puppy's in it. My kids are in it. Like it's super real life. And in addition to that, um, you know, in addition to that piece, it is all about forming community. I do the prayer not to create content, but rather to form community and teach people how to have a regular habit of praying and praying in community. And my goodness, it has worked beautifully through the last like five or six years. So, and it's also a discipleship strategy. I do that. I did that coming into this church, um, new to this church, to create a foundation for prayer. I wanted people to be praying with me. And so in order to create a culture of prayers, I needed to start praying for them, praying with them and for them. And man, it has really, it just works. It works. I think this is true. I think this was in the, um, in the piece by Carrie Newoff. Prayer is a really interesting discipleship tool to do this with because people want to pray. They want to send in their prayer requests. They want to pray. They want to do all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I think that's so important um, for us to really be all about um, because any, like anybody, the most church person to the least church person can really engage in prayer. So I think about ways for us to be more intentional about those kinds of intimate um, formation. And let me say, you can be a church of 50 people and do really good at that. You don't have to be a church of 5,000 because not everybody's gonna have the production value of a church of 5,000 people. But anybody that has a smartphone can do, can create intimate connection through prayer or any kind of like uh, community group in that kind of way. Well, and the beautiful thing about prayer is is not what you're reading out of the book of uh, Common Prayer uh, Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals, because no one on prayer time says, hey, can you go back to the quote that you read about St. Francis? That's not what they're doing. They're sharing what's on their heart, and that dictates what happens in the room. So it's the interaction that dictates what's happening. So for example, uh, we watched as a family, we watched the Barbie movie like two nights ago uh, at home. And it wasn't the movie. I mean, the movie is fantastic. It wasn't the movie. It was the conversation after the movie, which was the point, 
right? So right. the church creates the environment for the conversation that happens, not the production of the thing, right? That's not our wheelhouse. That's not what we're doing. It is creating an environment for the conversation about the thing to happen. Prayer time, it's not, you're not originating these prayers. You're not writing them, you know, it's, but you're creating an environment for the conversation to happen, right? That's the beauty of that in terms of this digital uh, ecosystem that we're trying to build, right? It's the connections. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So a softball to you, Matt, we've been talking about, and Carrie talks about AI in the church. Why is it important to lean into? <laughs> okay, friends, if you're not watching on our I've YouTube I've been waiting channel, for like 40 minutes for this question, Lisa. This <laughs> Matt is great. just cracked his knuckles. He's so excited. <laughs> anyway, why is it important for us to lean into? How can it be useful at this point? Yes. Great. Okay. So one of the, one of the great uh, advantages to AI, well, one, there's a lot of noise. Let me say this. There's a lot of noise with it right now. A lot of things that are popping up, a lot of that noise will settle. Just like with digital currency that we've seen, there was a lot of noise, and now it's settled back into Bitcoin, Ethereum. You know, it's settled. There's a lot of noise right now. There's a lot of controversy like OpenAI and Microsoft and Elon Musk. There's a lot of noise. That will settle down. What's really great about it is that it allows me, again, more time to connect with people. So, for example, right, I recently used uh, ChatGPT to help me figure out where a second campus for Asbury would be, right? And I put in our demographics and it literally spit out an intersection in town, right? I could get there and I would get there in the library reading articles. So it's not telling me something that I wouldn't have eventually gotten to. in the library reading articles, really? Okay, go ahead. It's, uh, well, you know. um, uh, (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Yes, yes, library. My wife, Christy, is a librarian. Libraries. Uh, still have a great function in communities, Lisa Greenwood. They do. They do. Um, I'm so sorry. Though, though my library card is not, uh, I need to renew it because uh, it's been a minute. Um, that's a metaphor. That's It's a metaphor, Lisa. Um, what I mean uh, by that is I would eventually get there, like through research and study. Sure. But that shortcut, because computers are really good at synthesizing information, it now allows me to do the work that I really am supposed to be doing, which is coffee talk, fundraising, being with people, right? Instead of spending all that time in researching. And it's also, AI is a great conversation partner in terms of creativity. Uh, ChatGPT uh, helped me with my um, spring worship series because I looked at the lectionary, the lectionary texts after Easter, and I input those texts and I asked it simply, what is the common theme in these texts? I said, oh, the common theme is, is this, this, and this. I was like, oh, again, I would have gotten there but it now has saved me much more time to actually do what I'm trained to do, which is be with people and to talk about God with people and to be in their lives. I would say one thing I'm most excited about in terms of the church's relationship with AI is that we need to bring, and we need to do it now, we need to bring an ethic into these spaces. So for example, what I mean by that is in Google's 2023 environmental report, uh, they used 5.6 billion gallons of water to cool their superconductors or their their, their computers, right? Uh, In the same time, uh, Microsoft, or no, uh, Meta uh, increased their water consumption by 50%, right? There is an ethic that we need to lean into as Christians. So it's not just a tool to help us with our sermon series, right? There is an obligation (laughs) for us to enter into these spaces and say like, well, hold on, there's some more things we need to consider. For example, 
uh, some, between 20 and 50 interactions on ChatGPT uh, is about the equivalency of an eight-ounce bottle of water that is being used for that to happen. So there's some environmental issues and some justice issues. Um, what is the stat? This is great. Google, in their report, said that their water, 82% of their water comes from low-stress areas where water is not a concern. But that also means that 18% is coming from places where it is, is a, a concern, concern. Yeah. and a stress. <laughs> yes, right? So we don't just lean into AI because it's part of the culture and it's a fun tool and it can really give us shortcuts that are really, really helpful. We also need to say like, hey, as uh, stewards of creation, <laughs> yeah, we need to lean into these things and bring our authority where we have authority. Uh, we need to lean into and, and be a barometer uh, and to be prophets uh, in some of these areas. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you're you're doing the both and here. You're saying mm -hmm. um, there there is a role for AI that actually helps us as pastors, as leaders, spend our energy, our time, our intellect, our um, uh, well, just on the things that we ought to be spending it on. Um, and so to be more efficient, to be better stewards, that kind of thing. But also the invitation to not just um, uh, just go all in, but to be wise consumers of it, if you will, to be thoughtful, to yep. be ethical, to say what is what is ours to push against um, as we are stewards of creation, as you say. And um, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate that. Okay. I'm going to do a, a last question, a rapid fire question for both of you. What is a trend that you are paying attention to in your context that may have wider implications for the church? I think the trend that I'm paying most attention to is trend number three, looking at Gen Z in particular, because mm. when I think about like when I think about the demographic that's least represented in my own context, it is Gen Z. And not that I don't have, I have a thriving youth group, those kinds of things. I'm saying, I'm saying the, the 18 to 27 year old, cause I, the oldest Gen Z is 27 year, that demographic is not well represented in the church. And that is super alarming. I've got a bunch of millennials, but I don't have 18 to 27 year olds. And I'm asking, I don't say I don't have any, I just have a limited number and I, I'm asking yeah. why, why? And so I think mm. it's really important to recognize, I don't think I have to become an expert in college ministry or anything like that. I just truly believe I need to pay attention to why is that group of folk almost um, absent from my congregation? Yeah, and for me, uh, yeah, it's trends four and six, right? Is, mm. is uh, looking at these new tools uh, and how they can be really amazing. Like I didn't know... ChatGPT could help me find where a successful second campus would be. Didn't know it could do that. I didn't know I could prompt it to do that. And mm -hmm. if we can cultivate that to other places and spaces and make that easier for other congregations, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of evangelism, I think. It could be a super, super tool to package that and to give that and gift that uh, uh, to, the, to the church. But I also think it's super, super important for us uh, to look at the cost of that. Uh, what is the cost of some of these tools? Uh, and and there there is an appropriate uh, means to pump the brakes a bit uh, in some of these things, or just to be the watcher on the wall, right, uh, uh, with yeah. some of these things. So I'm super interested in, yeah, in AI and, and technology and innovation 
of how these can be super helpful tools in doing what we're called to do, but also to bring that ethical voice in terms of, of how we should be using these tools moving forward. Nice. I can't thank you two enough. This has been a fabulous conversation, so insightful and interesting, and I appreciate both of you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'll be looking for the plaque that says most interviewed persons uh, with Lisa Greenwood. I think it should be like one of those clear diamond things uh-huh. that are on a pedestal that we you can are put two of our favorite go-to guests my address sure. is 3200 <laughs> <laughs> right right okay i want to end our time with a blessing from jan richardson it's an excerpt mm. from her poem called for those who have far to travel it is as you might have guessed an epiphany poem to start the new year so hear her words if you could see the journey whole you might never undertake it You might never dare the first step that propels you from the place you have known toward the place you know not. Call it one of the mercies of the road, that we see it only by stages, as it opens before us, as it comes into our keeping, step by single step. There is nothing for it but to go, and by our going, take the vows that pilgrims take to be faithful to the next step, to rely on more than the map, to heed the signposts of intuition and dream, to follow the star that only you will recognize, to keep an open eye for the wonders that attend the path, to press on beyond distractions, beyond fatigue, and beyond what would tempt you from the way. Each promise becomes part of the path, Each choice creates the road that will take you to the place where at last you will kneel to offer the gift most needed, the gift that only you can give before turning to go home by another way. May it be so, dear friends. Thank you. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Learning and Innovation Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners, visit our website at ignitingimagination.org, and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.